Good morning, everybody. It is uh, always good to be worshiping together, but often uh, it is particularly good to be worshiping together on baptisms, and uh, those were great testimonies, were they not? There were a couple uh, of baptisms as well in the first service, and uh, one of the baptisms was by uh, one of our uh, students, one of our elementary students, Hannah Doy. And uh, so kids, I know you're here in the service as well, and perhaps you see these baptisms. You don't have to wait all the way until uh, after college to get baptized. You can get baptized. Talk to your parents. Talk to a pastor. Hannah, uh, it was great. She shared about how she was in the service listening to the sermon. She was bored as usual. And uh, then suddenly, uh, the Spirit just spoke to her and began to make sense. And that was really uh, neat. When I was hearing her tell her story, I thought, you know, if she was bored, she's probably listening to Pastor Todd. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> But then she said that the Spirit spoke to her and she got saved, and I thought that this probably actually was me preaching. <laughs> so I don't know. But I hope the best for you today. Regardless, uh, the Spirit will speak to you and uh, open up your eyes to see. That's what I've been praying and uh, desire for all of us this morning. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 23, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a powerful passage uh, as we've already read, a passage where we see a Jesus uh, full of anger. And depending on your view of Jesus and depending uh, upon your view of anger, that might seem uh, to be somewhat unusual. And um, if we have a, hold on, I'm sorry, I'm having a problem with my microphone, which is not your problem in the back, it's my problem in the front here, so hang on one second. Okay. All right. So, excuse me. So, depending on our uh, view of Jesus or our view of anger, this can seem, Jesus' anger here can seem rather unusual. We can have a view of Jesus where Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as we're taught about him uh, in, uh, in Sunday school. He ha- always wears the blue sash. He has the lamb on his shoulder. And he always suffers not the little children to come to him. And it's hard to imagine Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, so full of anger. It's not how we expect or think Jesus should be. Or perhaps it's our experience of anger that prevents us from seeing Jesus as angry. Because our experience of anger, whether it's our anger directed out or it's anger directed towards us, is so totalizing and destructive that it's hard to imagine that something so bad as anger could be in the mouth of Jesus. So we wrestle to make sense of this text because it seems almost unfitting, as it were, of Jesus. This is something that the uh, scholars recognize as well. One scholar writes, the pitch of Jesus' prophetism in this sermon is so high and it's attacked so bitter that some interpreters have difficulty believing that the historical Jesus ever said much of it. Or one interpreter calls this chapter in Matthew the unloveliest chapter. Or another calls it the most troubled chapter. And yet here it is before us, and there's no getting around it. And it's a legitimate tension that we experience because when we think about Jesus' words that we saw that Pastor Josh so uh, well led us through last Sunday, Jesus is talking about the sum of the law and the prophets being the command to love, to love God and to love neighbor. 
And here we are just one chapter later, and Jesus is lighting up the Pharisees with all sorts of insults and invective. Or perhaps we could go back to Matthew, uh, the earlier chapters of 5 through 7, when Jesus gives his famous Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that we are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. If we're struck on one cheek, we're to turn the other cheek. If we're asked to go one mile, we should go two. We're to have a disposition of love towards our enemies, and yet here is Jesus with his enemies, and what he's giving them is anger. So how do we make sense of this? Well, I'm going to pose three questions that will guide us through the remainder of the sermon, but the three questions this First question is, how do we make sense of Jesus' anger? How do we understand what's going on in this text, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees? How do we make sense of Jesus' anger? Secondly, how can we learn from Jesus' anger about our own anger? In other words, what does Jesus' expression of anger towards the Pharisees have to say to us about our own use of anger? And finally, what does Jesus' anger say about his love for us? So how do we make sense of Jesus' anger? What can we learn from Jesus' anger about our own anger? And what does Jesus' anger say about his love for us? Perhaps you are someone that is either new to the Christian faith or you're an outsider to the Christian faith, but one of your views of God is that God is an angry God. He's a wrathful God, a God that just is out to get anyone that steps in the wrong direction. This perhaps would be a really important sermon for you to listen to because Jesus, as the Son of God, expresses the heart of God. And when we come to see what's going on in Jesus' anger, we're seeing the heart of God for the world. So let's pay attention towards that end. All right, so how do we make sense of Jesus' anger? Let's look at our text here that has been uh, so well read for us already. If you've been traveling this summer, let me bring you up to speed a little bit on what's been happening in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, up until very recently in Matthew's narrative, has been staying away from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. That's the seat of their power. And so Jesus has been staying away from Jerusalem because he doesn't want to provoke a conflict with the Pharisees. But yet he shows up uh, here a few verses earlier, as Pastor Joey uh, showed us two Sundays ago, when he rides into Jerusalem. And one of the first things that he does is he clears out the temple and overturns the tables. And the, the confrontation with the Pharisees then begins in earnest. And then last week, Pastor Josh uh, took us through Matthew chapter 22, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they are concerned about the way that he has been teaching and, in their view, misleading the people. And so they begin to put questions to him. They begin to try to trick him and uh, catch him up in something that he might say that would be a slip-up, that would give them leverage over Jesus in the minds of the people or a breach of some religious law. And so there's this verbal sparring that goes back and forth between Jesus and and the Pharisees, which brings us to our text today in Matthew 23. It's the same scene. So the scene that we left off with last week with Pastor Josh and Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, when Jesus ends, or Matthew tells us, uh, that, that no one else from that point dared ask him any more questions. Jesus won the, the verbal spar, as it were. 
But Jesus isn't content to just win the verbal spar. He's going to now take it to the Pharisees. But first he calls over the people to him. And we read in 23, 1 through 11, Jesus' comments to the people, or 1 through 12 actually, Jesus' comments to the people about the Pharisees. So before he interacts with the Pharisees directly, he's going to speak to the people about the Pharisees. And he says to them, uh, he says, you, now listen, the Pharisees, basically, just to summarize, the Pharisees are wicked, terrible people. However, they sit in Moses' seat. They are the religious leaders. So you have to do what they tell you to do. There's still those that are in charge, and they need to be given deference, and they need to be given obedience because they occupy positions of authority. But you're not to do what they do. Don't be like them. They lord it over the people. They're filled up with pride. And so you are to seek the way of humility. And this is in keeping with what Jesus has been saying all along that Pastor Johnny spoke on three weeks ago, where the pathway to blessing is not through exaltation and pride, but the pathway to blessing is through being a servant and through humility. So Jesus calls the crowds to him. He tells them that the Pharisees are not the people that they should be listening to. And he tells, the, uh, he tells them to not do like them. Listen to them, but don't do like them. But then he turns his attention to the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. And so from verse 13 all the way to 36, he invades against the Pharisees and he calls them all sorts of names throughout this passage. So I added them all up. So he refers to the Pharisees and the scribes seven times as hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says this seven times. He calls them children of hell, which was not complimentary. Then he refers to them as blind guides twice, blind fools once, and then blind men. So the Pharisees are supposed to be leading the people, but they themselves are blind. Then he refers to them as whitewashed tombs that have an appearance of looking good on the outside, but inside are full of rot and decay. Then he uh, impugns their ancestors by saying that they are sons of murderers, those that have killed the prophets. Then he calls them serpents. Then he calls them a brood of vipers. And then not only are they sons of those who have murdered the prophets, but then he says, you yourselves have murdered the prophets. You do the things that your father has done. And then catch what he says here at the end of his invective against the Pharisees. He says that on you, because of all that you've done, on you will come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barkiah. Abel, of course, we know is the brother that Cain slew. So Jesus goes all the way back to the very first murder that ever happened in human history. And he tells the scribes and the Pharisees that upon them will come all the blood guilt of every righteous person that has ever been shed since the beginning of the world. I mean, just let that sink in if Jesus had said that to you. Every righteous person that ever died, their blood guilt is on your head. That's what he's saying. So he's not happy. But the most damning thing of all, probably in this passage, is Jesus' pronouncement of woes. We don't woe people uh, nowadays. 
But back in these days, a woe, to pronounce a woe upon someone was to, was to forecast doom and the wrath of God upon someone because of their wickedness. It was frequently used by the prophets. And so the Jewish prophets would be sent by God and he would, would, the prophet would go to the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel would be involved in some idolatry or waywardness. And the prophet would come and pronounce woe upon the people, that judgment was coming, that they had crossed a line, and that now the wrath of God was going to descend. And so Jesus, in pronouncing his woes, is pronouncing a woe upon the Pharisees that they have come under the wrath of God. We see this also in the book of Revelation. Jesus has seven woes in this chapter. In the book of Revelation, we see seven trumpets of judgment. And then the last of these trumpets are accompanied, the last three trumpets are accompanied by woes. And so as each trumpet sounds, it would wreak havoc upon the earth and destruction and judgment. And then John, the apostle, the seer, he would say, the first woe is past, the second is to come. And then judgment would come upon the earth and wreak havoc and destruction. The second woe is past, the third woe is to come. So being woed is a serious thing. Now here's the question we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus so upset about? I mean, at first pass, we might think that Jesus is upset because of hypocrisy or perhaps of spiritual blindness. I mean, that would in some ways make sense because Jesus, when he woes the Pharisees, he cast a, pronounces a woe upon them and he refers to them as hypocrites or refers to them as blind. So maybe Jesus just doesn't like hypocrisy. He's kind of an authentic guy and he just doesn't have a lot of patience for hypocrisy. But it's not hypocrisy. It's not blindness for the sake of blindness that has Jesus so upset in this passage. The reason for Jesus' anger is seen in verse 13. Look what he says here. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he's going to give what is kind of the theme throughout this judgment. Here's why Jesus is angry. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves don't enter, and those who want to enter, you're not letting them come in. You go from town to town to make converts, traveling over land and sea, and when you finally make a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as yourself. The hypocrisy and blindness of the scribes and the Pharisees is damning the people of God. This is why Jesus is so upset. It's not hypocrisy for the sake of hypocrisy. It's not blindness for the sake of blindness. It's because their blindness and their hypocrisy is bringing about the ruin of Jesus' people. The job of the Pharisees was to sit in the seat of Moses and to lead the people into the kingdom of God. The job of the Pharisees was to prepare the people for the arrival of Messiah so that when Messiah came and preached the kingdom of God, they'd be able to receive the salvation that God had so long promised to the Jewish prophets. But instead of leading the people into the kingdom of God and being prepared for the kingdom of God, the Pharisees have taken Moses' seat and they have used it for their own self-aggrandizement. And they have elevated themselves full of pride and hypocrisy in a way that has prevented the people from being able to be led to God and receiving the salvation that God had intended. 
Through word and deed, the Pharisees have been teaching the people to turn away from God. And they are murdering the prophets whom, whom God has sent to turn the people back to God. So the Pharisees are under the gun in Jesus' mind because of what they've done in harming the people of God. And we see this, I think, most fully in verse 37. After Jesus is done speaking to the Pharisees and he's said all that he said about them, he looks at Jerusalem that he has come to redeem and he laments over it. In Luke's gospel, he tells us that he weeps over it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you into my arms, to bring you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you're not willing. And the reason they're not willing is because of the scribes and the Pharisees have led the people astray. And now nothing but the judgment of God can come upon all those who have turned away from him. So Jesus isn't pronouncing woe upon the Pharisees because they are his enemies. He's pronouncing woe upon the Pharisees because they are harming the people of God. Or to say it again, his anger towards the scribes and the Pharisees is born out of his love for his people. It is his love that gives rise to his anger. If he didn't love, he wouldn't be angry. The anger of God kindled is the love of God displayed. The anger of God kindled is the love of God displayed for his people. Turn to Psalm 136. I don't often have you turn to another passage of scripture, but I, I think this is really helpful to see this here in this text. This idea that love and wrath are not mutually exclusive going in different directions, but rather they actually run together and reinforce each other. Psalm 136 is page 520 in your pew Bible if you have it, but it's a really uh, powerful and beautiful uh, psalm. It's one that we often uh, have put to music, and so we've sung it here, in fact. But what's noticeable is that it's often only the, well, it almost always is only the first uh, nine verses that are put to music. So this has a reoccurring stanza that's unique, the structure here of this psalm. You have the, the psalmist giving thanks to the Lord... And then this, this stanza that says, For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of God. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. And this reoccurring stanza of his steadfast love endures forever shows up all throughout the entire psalm, sandwiched in between these pronouncements about God's demonstration of his steadfast love. And so we see here in the beginning of the psalm that the psalmist praises God and God's love for the way that God is the Lord of lords, for the way that he has made the world, for all that he has created. But then verse 10 takes an interesting shift, that the steadfast love of God is not seen only in God's creative power, creating the sun, creating the moon, as we see in verses 8 and 9, but also for his redemptive activity. So in verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his steadfast love endures forever. The nation of Israel is in the land of Egypt. They're being persecuted and oppressed by the Egyptians, and God comes in wrath to deliver his people. And the great 
culmination, the consummation of the plagues is the plague of the firstborn, where God strikes down the firstborn son of every Egyptian. And through that act of wrath, delivers his people into freedom. And the psalmist rightly sees that that act of wrath upon the Egyptians was in fact God's love for the Israelites. So that God's wrath and God's love do not run at odds with each other, but are in fact an expression of his commitment to his people. Verse 12, with strong hand and outstretched arm, his love endures forever. Made Israel pass through the midst of the sea, his love endures forever. He overthrew Pharaoh and his host, his steadfast love endures forever. And then verse 17, he struck down great kings, his love endures forever. He killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, he gave their land his heritage, his love endures forever. In verse 23, we have this come together uh, summarized. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, his steadfast love endures forever. The wrath of God upon the people that are oppressing the people of God is an expression of God's love for his people. And so when we see here that Jesus is angry with the Pharisees, what we see is Jesus' love for those that he has come to redeem. Love is an expression, or anger rather, can be an expression of love. So what do we we learn about Jesus' anger? Jesus' anger is an expression of his love. That's the thing that we see here in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus' anger against the Pharisees is an expression of his love for his people. So what do we learn from that then? What do we do with that? We see Jesus' anger against the Pharisees, and then we try to figure out how does that apply to our own experience of anger. Most of us don't like being angry. Most of us try to suppress anger. Some of us could try a little harder, would probably be good to express anger, to, to suppress anger, uh, rather. Um, but most of us don't like to express it. We'll try to, try to suppress it. And this is, I think, well and good, because um, anger very often is selfish, uh, and it's driven by our own concerns. Most of the often when we are angry, we are not driven by our love for others, but by love for self. We lash out in anger in order to protect ourselves, to vindicate ourselves, because we have been wronged. Jesus is moving towards the Pharisees with anger, not because he's been wronged, but because he sees what their wrong has done to the people that he loves. But so often when we're angry, we're not moving forward in anger because some injustice has been done to others, but because some injustice, perceived or not, has been done to us. We're told to be slow to anger like the Lord. And what's interesting is that we are slow to anger when others are being wronged. We're quick to anger when we're being wronged should in fact be quite the opposite. That when we are being wronged, we should be slow to anger. But when others are being wronged, this is the time for anger to surface. Anger in service of self is the sort of anger that the Apostle James refers to as the anger of man. It does not bring about the righteousness of God. That's the kind of anger that we have to suppress, that we have to get rid of, that we should let go of. That's the kind of anger that should not rule our hearts. The self the self-motivated anger. 
But sometimes in our suppression of our anger, we refuse to let ourselves be animated by injustice. Some people get angry too easy. Some people don't get angry easy enough. Because when there is injustice, this is the occasion for righteous indignation and anger. Anger in service of self is sinful, but anger in service of others is righteous anger that can bring about the righteousness of God. It's a quote that's attributed often to Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian. He writes this, to bear with patience wrongs done to oneself is a mark of perfection. This is Jesus's turn the other cheek. To bear with patience wrongs done to oneself is a mark of perfection, but to bear with patience wrongs done to someone else is a mark of imperfection and even of actual sin. When Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, that's when our cheek has been struck. But he doesn't tell us to turn the other cheek when someone else's cheek has been struck. So that when we see an injustice perpetrated against someone and someone is struck in the face, we say to them, yeah, turn the other cheek and get hit again. No, no, no. That's not when we turn the other cheek. We turn the other cheek when we're being offended, when we're being assaulted. We don't turn the other cheek when someone else is. There's two times in Matthew's gospel, really two times probably in all the gospels, where we see Jesus clearly angry. Jesus isn't walking around angry all the time. He's not driven by anger. But there are a couple times when we see Jesus angry. It's interesting because we don't see Jesus laughing. We don't see Jesus telling jokes. We don't even hear about Jesus smiling. Not to say that these things never happened. But what's notable is that there are two clear times in Scripture where we see Jesus angry. Of course, one of them is here in Matthew 23 in our text. But there's one other time that Jesus was angry. When is it? When he's clearing the temple. That's right. He's angry when he's clearing the temple. He goes into the temple and he sees what's happening in the temple. He says, you've taken my father's house, which should be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And he fashions a whip out of a cord. He drives out the money changers. He overturns the temple. He lets the animals loose. He sends the money scattering. Jesus is clearly ticked. Two times in Matthew's gospel, two times in Matthew's gospel where Jesus gets angry. And it's interesting if we think about the way that anger is in service of love. Anger is in service of love. In Matthew 23, Jesus is angry at the Pharisees because they have wronged human beings. They've wronged those that Jesus has been sent to redeem. They've wronged others. When Jesus clears the temple in Matthew 22, he is concerned for God's glory Zeal for my father's house, the disciples remember. This is the prophecy. Zeal for my father's house will consume me. The two times that we see Jesus angry, he's not angry for himself. At one point, he's angry for God. and another point, he's angry for his fellow man. And this brings us back to the great commandment. Because the great commandment is to love God and to love neighbor as self. And so Jesus, as he is expressing the great commandment to love God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and to love his neighbor as himself. It is this commitment to the great commandment that drives the two times that we see his anger in the Gospels. So where does your righteous anger need to be aroused? 
Some of us, perhaps if you're like me, I don't, I don't like to get angry. I like to stay in a steady state. But there are times when even those of us that like to remain calm need to get animated. There are injustices in this world that should arouse within us our anger and our indignation. There are inequalities in this world, whether racially, economically, relationally, whatever it might be that we experience, that we come into, that we are so tempted to turn a blind eye to. We don't want to get angry about these things. But Jesus, out of love for those that are oppressed, moves towards that oppression with anger. And it is appropriate and right at times that when we see oppression and injustice in this world, that we need to move towards those instances of injustice with anger. The Apostle John, writing in his epistle, he says, how can you say that you love God, but see your brother in need and do nothing? How can we see the travesties of injustice around us, directed against our fellow human being made in God's image, and be indifferent Jesus got angry when he saw the injustice because he loved, and we should be no less. Perhaps this is close to home, maybe for students today in the classroom or at school, where you see students that are treated unjustly. And perhaps you're so worried about just not being one of them that you turn a blind eye to the injustice. But you should move forward with the spirit of Christ to defend those that need to be defended. That is the same true for us as adults in the workplaces or in the neighborhood or in our extended families or maybe even in our immediate family. That we should not sit indifferently and passively by while injustices are being perpetrated. Sometimes I think, though, the reason that our anger is not aroused at injustice is because we don't let ourselves come into contact with injustice. We will never be aroused in righteous indignation by injustice if we fail to put ourselves in proximity to unjust suffering. We'd rather just look away. We'd rather not be near it. Because if we get near it, we'd have to do something about it. And we don't want to have to do anything about it. But Jesus moves into the places of suffering. And he moves into the places of suffering with compassion, with mercy, with tenderness, and at times with anger. We will never be aroused into righteous indignation if we don't let ourselves love those who are being hurt. So we need to do that. We need to do that as individuals. We need to continue to do that as a church and a congregation. But righteous indignation, it's like balancing on the knife's edge. It's tricky. It's tricky that it doesn't slide into the anger of man or passivity. How do we know that our anger is righteous anger? I want to give you just a couple things to think about, kind of five checks, as it were. The next time you're in a rage and you're flying off the handle, you can pause and you can be like, what did Pastor Gerald say about those five things? Let me just examine my anger right now and see how I'm doing. So let's just see how this works. So first... Your anger is probably righteous anger if it's on behalf of the oppressed, as we've already seen. If your anger is in service of self, if the offense has been done to you, then your anger is probably the anger of man. 
But if your anger is on behalf of an injustice done to someone else, there's a good chance that it's righteous anger. Your anger is righteous anger, secondly, if it's tinged with lament and grief. Jesus here at his end of his uh, invective against the Pharisees, he, we see his heart of love that was giving birth to the anger when he turns to Jerusalem and he weeps over it. There's grief and lament in righteous anger. And so when we see the injustices in the world that arouse within us righteous indignation, we need to bring with it lament and grieving as well. Thirdly, if your anger is only slowly kindled, then it's probably righteous indignation. When Moses asked for the Lord to show him his glory, no one had asked for that before. The Lord had never shown anyone his glory in that way before. And the Lord comes to Moses and he passes his glory before Moses, proclaiming his name. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. There is a slowness to anger. The Lord gets angry. He gets angry. And there are places all throughout Scripture where we see the anger of the Lord. And Jesus is an expression of the unseen God as the Son of God. And we see the anger of Jesus. But, but the Lord is slow to anger. And we should be slow to anger as well. There may be other more productive ways of dealing with injustice than immediately moving to attack and to anger. Fourthly, if your anger does not take you out of control, then there's a good chance it's righteous anger. Anger on behalf of self, I have found, tends to take me out of control. Maybe you're different than I am. But when I am consumed by an anger that is motivated by my own wounds or my own fears, it tends to make me less in control. I don't make good decisions when I'm angry. But in the times when I'm angry on behalf of others, when I am concerned for an injustice done to others, it tends to focus me. It tends to bring control. It tends to narrow my understanding of what needs to be done and what needs to be dealt with. So if your anger isn't taking you out of control, then it's probably a good sign that it's righteous anger. And then lastly, if your anger does not cause you to give way to bitterness and hate, then it is probably righteous anger. Anger... Righteous anger, I think anger on behalf of the injustice done to others can at times, if we're not careful, just be a cloak for our own unresolved pain. Sheldon Van Auken, he wrote a book called A Severe Mercy, and it has absolutely nothing to do with anger. But there was one paragraph in the book that I thought was really apropos uh, to this conversation, and I want to read it here. He was involved in a lot of social activism in the 60s, particularly the peace movement. And as he reflected back upon his experience in uh, the peace movement, this is what he wrote. It says, I was one of those who caught, was caught up in the mood and action of the 1960s, especially the peace movement. Christ, I thought, would surely have me oppose what appeared an unjust war. But the movement, whatever its ideals, did a good deal of hating. And Christ gradually was pushed to the rear. Movement goals, not God, became first. In fact, not only for me, but for other Christians involved, including priests, I now think that making God secondary, which in the end is to make him nothing, is quite simply the mortal danger in social action, especially in view of the marked intimation of virtue, even arrogant virtue that often perilously accompanies it. And he closes by saying, hating the oppressor of my neighbor isn't perhaps quite what Christ had in mind. 
Our capacity for anger insofar as it's righteous anger and insofar as it's born out of love should never outstrip our capacity for love. If we find it easier to be angry about injustice or injustice than it is to love and be kind and compassionate, then maybe something is out of balance. Social justice on behalf of the oppressed is good and necessary as an expression of Christian love. There are times when we must be angry. But the occasional motivation check, I think, is important because are we motivated by a love for Christ or by our own sense of disenfranchised bitterness? We need to be careful that we're not working out our own unresolved pain and using the injustice of others as a way to go about doing it. So that we're not really loving those who are oppressed, but we're using them for our own ends. Too often those we purport to serve end up being little more than a means by which we can stick it to the man. And that's not loving the oppressed. That's using the oppressed. And that eventually comes back to bite us. So God calls us, through the example of Christ, to righteous anger. But what, finally, as we conclude, what does Jesus' anger teach us about the love of God? As we've already seen, Jesus' anger against the Pharisees not only teaches us about how we should use anger and how anger should operate in our lives, but in an unexpected way, it reminds us that God loves us, that he loves us enough to get angry on our behalf, really angry if necessary. John's vision of Revelation, his view of the end of the world, it is the book that contains the full expression of God's apocalyptic wrath upon the wickedness of the world. But if you read the book of Revelation and only see the wrath of God, you miss the heart of what is going on in the book of Revelation. The wrath of God in the book of Revelation is not just God's wrath upon wickedness, because God is the cosmic scorekeeper and the rule keeper, just needs to suppress anything that looks bad. It's very clear as you read the book of Revelation that the wrath of God upon the wickedness of the world is because it has wounded his people. God moves towards the world with judgment to deliver his people, just as he moved towards Egypt with judgment to deliver his people. And the full expression of the wrath of God that we see in the apocalypse is the full expression of his love for his people. We have this vision of Jesus in Revelation 19, one of the last visions that we have of Christ. And in this vision, John sees Jesus riding on a war horse coming down with the armies of heaven and holding a sword. And with it, he destroys the enemies of God who have set themselves against his people. Jesus treads the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty because he loves. And that is for us as his people really good news. It is, in fact, because God loves us enough to avenge us that we are freed up to live into Jesus' commands about loving our enemies. We can turn the other cheek because God has our back. We can go the extra mile because God sees and he knows and he takes it to account. 
We don't need to avenge, the Apostle Paul tells us, because God will avenge. And so we are freed up to follow Jesus' way of love where we don't defend ourselves. We don't use anger for our own sake because we let God's anger take care of our injustices that are directed against us. We are free to love our enemies because God will call our enemies to account. Either he will reconcile them to us in his grace or he will judge them appropriately in his wrath. The love of God for his people is an awesome, terrifying, and comforting reality. There is no length to which he will not go to redeem his own. And woe, woe to those who would stand between God and those that he is determined to redeem. So may we first rest in God's love for us. Would Jesus' example of anger be a reminder that he loves us? Then may it be a pattern for us that we would go and do likewise as we encounter injustice in the world. And may our anger be an expression of God's love for those who are hurting and oppressed. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you that you loved us enough. You loved us enough to get angry on our behalf. And that your wrath poured out upon the wickedness and the injustices in this world are born out of your love and your commitment to your people. God, we thank you that in Christ, we who should have received the full brunt of your wrath have been brought into your people so that now your wrath is not against us, but on behalf of us. It is not an expression of your judgment, but an expression of your love. Lord, I pray for any that are gathered here today that have not yet welcomed your love and yet stand, as Jesus says, under wrath. God, may by your spirit you open up their eyes to see the good news that in Christ sin and death can be put to death and new life can be given in his resurrection and that through faith in you we can become part of your family. God, grant that, I pray, to some even here this morning. Make us thankful people, Lord. Make us people that love and make us people that get angry when anger is called for. But anger in service of love always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.